0: This healthcare system that we operate in is like a complex jigsaw puzzle, but all the pieces are broken and scattered everywhere. In health, data should be the glue that holds it all together, but too often, those pieces just don't seem to fit. How do we unlock the potential hidden value in this data treasure trove, and how can we leverage data and artificial intelligence to reshape the healthcare landscape? Today on the podcast, Sophie Turner from Talking Health Tech speaks with Anthony Yogoni, Chief Data Officer at Think and Grow. And in this episode, we talk about the untapped potential in the current healthcare system and how data and AI can unlock it all. The exciting developments on the horizon from IoT and wearables. And how can we overcome the barriers that are holding back data-driven healthcare innovations? collaboration starts with the conversation team health tech let's make it happen this is talking health tech with me peter birch featuring content and community about technology in healthcare
1: welcome to talking health tech i'm your host sophie and today i'm joined by anthony Ugoni, chief data officer from Think and Grow. Welcome Anthony, it's great to have you here.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Sophie. All
1: right, shall we kick things off? Let's get into it. Awesome. Well, can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what your role is at Think and Grow?
2: So I uh, I take different titles, depending on um, who we might be talking to at the time. Chief Data Officer, just to kind of make it clear as to what uh, my expertise is. Partner slash data, or on other times. But I'm a mathematics guy from an earlier stage. I got blessed with uh, amazing teachers right throughout my cycle of, of that helped me embrace maths. I wanted to be a mathematician uh, in grade six when everybody else wanted to be a fireman or a teacher or something else. I didn't even know what a mathematician was. And I studied statistics, which was the original data science. So I was kind of well-behaved growing up in society because I just assumed that there were machines or devices out there that were watching you and analysing your behaviours. My tax was always perfect when I started earning tax. Had I known back then what I know now as to what our infrastructure actually was doing with data or the lack of data, I just would have got up to so much more travel. Um, <laughs> but that being said, you know, gives you a sense of I'm always thinking, I can't help but think about, as I move through life and society, oh, this thing, if I had this piece of data, I could make this thing better. And it goes from everything from, you well, know, my banking to health to getting devices on my golf clubs to help my game. I've got spreadsheets of my four vegetable patches at home so that I can optimise what to plant, when to plant, how to fertilise it. So, um, yeah, I'm a mathematical and data nerds in way back.
1: Yeah, wow. Well, I'm always fascinated with how people end up in... Becoming mathematicians, and you know, when I was at uni, you had to do epidemiology and you had to do stats, and I was so bad at all of it. It's one of the most frustrating, like I got through it, but it's the most frustrating part, I think, of my academic career past school. Let's, I'd love to dive back a little bit further into what you've done with working in epidemiology. You were biostatistician, and you've co-authored over 50 papers. Can we go back a little bit, well, sort of in between, I guess, from um, wanting to be a mathematician to to where you are now and and what you've done?
2: The only career ahead of me when I hit university was to be a physicist, really, um, way back then. That was the only thing that I knew that I could take um, mathematical capability into as a career. And I was a little bit in uninformed because there's also engineering and accounting and a whole bunch of other things. I picked up this subject called statistics because it just kind of fit my time And the physics department people said, oh, wow, that's the hard maths. Don't do that. That's way too hard. I thought, oh, wow, if the physicists decide this is hard, well, I really want to do that. That's the maths that I want to do. So I pursued that and just loved it from day to day. Kind of wandered out of university and stumbled into a biostat structure. Through no structural strategy, um, came across this job and just loved it. And I got to work on you know I don't specialize in any type of medicine or pharmacology or anatomy, so I got to work on a bunch of things simply because the mathematics in biostats and epidemiology it's agnostic to the problem. So figuring out you know trying to use statistics to determine what are the risk factors well. Cervical cancer, which I you know, have some publications on, or head injuries in the elderly, premature birth, a bunch of things that I got to work on. The mathematics, like I said, is not particular to that problem. It's agnostic. So I, get to, I got to work with a whole bunch of really smart epidemiologists, clinicians, etc., who have all sorts of theories about cause and effect. And I got to apply my train. And I had a wonderful time doing it. It gave me a deep respect for the data because ultimately you're getting access to patient data and you know, typically patients had to be sick for there to be data generated for you to then apply or train. So it gave me deep respect for um, the way we you know the whole process of obtaining data, using it wisely, using it well, respecting the ethics and privacy of us, and experimentation, which then stood me in good stead for a commercial world. So did you want me to touch on what I did after epi and biostats?
1: Yeah, go for it.
2: So just to give you a sense of how agnostic the mathematics is to the problem, I think I said to you off air that my grandmother, when she was alive, right up until the age of 104, she thought I was a genius because I did the epi and biostats stuff. Um, but then I did um, three years looking after fraud, analytics at National Australia Bank. And then I did a big chunk of time looking after customer analytics at Man. And then I did seven years at Seat, building out the ARA data capability. And then a couple of years at Buber uh, and a year out in education style called on. A whole bunch of advisory things on the side. So the mathematics to figure out what is predictive of you know, osteoporosis, for example, another publication, is the same mathematics that helps you figure out, based on what we know about this particular customer and the transaction they're making, is this transaction, is it a counterfeit or a fraudulent transaction? It's the same mathematics that you use to figure out is this customer likely to need a home line in the next three months? Is the same mathematics that you use to help determine that this ad that's just been written by this hider, this recruiter, This ad will be best placed uh, in the logistics sections of the seek taxonomy, and it looks like a part-time ad, and it probably pays this much. Make sure, you know, the recruiter, uh, you post it in this environment so that you get the best application response site to this ad. The mathematics is all the same. And so, um, like I said, my grandmother thought I was a genius because she thought, you know, I worked across all these different fields. Really, I've worked in one field, mathematics, statistics, in particular, and the modern version of that is data science. And I've just applied it to many different uh, trades. And, and it's akin to it. I think of it as a professional taxi driver. We grew up flying their trade in Melbourne, but then moved to Brisbane and became a taxi driver, uh, and then went to Toowoomba, and is now driving taxis in Launceston. We're all different cities with very different dynamics. They just apply their trade in those different
1: so The mathematics is agnostic, but health has been a thread throughout your entire career. Let's dive into that a little bit. There's you know, many facets to the healthcare system. In the current ecosystem, do you think there's still a material uplift to be had through the use of data and AI, or is the system as good as it's going to be? I
2: think there's a ton of upside to be had in, in the system. I, I was just, as an example, I always go back to the very simple problem, very simple problem, very tragic and complex problem of organ donation, kidney organ donation. When when we first developed this capability, we would have organ donors, and they were typically people who were, you know, maybe in a car sort of and they ticked the box to be an organ donor. Now, so we had this matching problem where the person who needed the transplant had to wait for something diabolical to happen to somebody else before an available kidney could be uh, made available to them. And there's some great work done from some uh, economists where they saw this as a, in my words, non-linear programming problem, where they built an incentive environment. So the incentive environment was, hey, Anthony, you need a kidney. And Sophie is your sister or your mother or your partner or your best friend or your Anthony, the person who needs the kidney, brings along somebody who's got a healthy kidney. Sophie's kidney isn't compatible with Anthony, uh, but we know enough about Sophie's kidney to know where it could be compatible. And so they built this system where all these pairs of people, people who needed the kidney, came with the person who had a kidney, put them into this marketplace, and they used the maths to say, right, let's turn the big sausage handle and figure out with all these people, how many matches, what's the maximum number of matches that we can make up, such that uh, Anthony gets a kidney from an anonymous person from you know, somewhere else, but in turn, you donates her kidney on Anthony's behalf as a pair, her kidney goes to somebody else elsewhere, um, and you may or may not know who that person is. And that's just a great application of you know, some really Long Island, well-known mathematics to a problem that you know saved lives. And when I look at... Our health system today, there are many more opportunities. Um, our individual hospitals kind of act in isolation to each other. They have a bunch of resources, and it could be that one hospital has way too much of something and another hospital uh, is in short supply of So how do we build mechanisms so that the network is constantly finding the best balance of resources? I spent you know, the best part of a decade, probably more, I was on the editorial board. Emerges, the Journal of Emergency Medicine Australia. And I reviewed every paper that had a statistical bent to it. And just anecdotally, at a guess, it felt like one in three of those papers were trying to solve the problem of triage and waiting times in emergency departments. Those are problems that have been solved in other industries. Waiting times, queuing times in a large number of other industries has been solved. We could apply those same algorithms just in the waiting room in the emergency department and between emergency departments. And I think I was saying to the conversation up here another time, we know that COVID mobility and the ability to get in and out of your hospital bed and around the grounds and fresh air is an important part to your recovery. But you need to stay in your bed because the nurse needs to know where you are because at this particular time, like, it's time to administer the drug or whatever it is and do the check. But well, we have these, you know, RFID devices. We already tag patients as they come to hospital. You tag registrants. And so through IoT, we could be watching people, patients around the hospital, giving them the freedom of movement. Very, very simple thing, but having been a patient in hospital, we'd love the ability, that freedom to kind of wander around to so my heart's content. And when it's that moment where I need to take the pill or the dressing on the womb needs to be changed or whatever it might be, kind of optimising the staffing network to say, hey, Anthony, you know, we're usually in bed, why? You're way over on the other side of the hospital, but there's this nurse here who's going to give you the tablet or change you or whatever it might be, because we know where you are, we know what you need, we've got the robots wandering around with the resources to do. And so those are all things, just from a really, really simple operational perspective, that would just make the healthcare system a little bit more palatable, if you like, a little bit better. The way, the way things work today is, uh, I'll sort of give you an example. I had to have eye work done. Early onset glaucoma, I was the youngest patient in my ophthalmologist's white. But I started with my optometrist to get my glasses changed. They said, well, you should talk to your doctor about glaucoma. I went to my doctor and spoke to them about glaucoma. I had to uh, wait for them to whatever results they were looking for, then went back, had a consult. They said, you need to speak to an ophthalmologist. So then I rang up an ophthalmologist, got into a queue, waiting time, treatment, treatment, monitoring, monitoring, and then when it came time for surgery, it was all about when the hospital was ready, et cetera, et cetera. So it feels like the healthcare system, particularly in Australia, the experience as a patient is that everything is centred around the healthcare provider. You get treated when the healthcare provider is ready, whereas as a patient... What we would really like, we would like to be treating immediately, if not sooner, if possible, in a seamless and efficient manner. But we just have all these bits of friction in between. If we could flip the model on its head, and I make it sound much easier than it actually is, but if we could flip the model on its head, get people through the system quicker, we'd have better health outcomes, and no doubt we'd have better efficiencies to be found amongst that system. And we would get to, I think we'd get to the point where we'd free our resources so that we were treating a little bit less and putting resources into preventing stuff a little bit more. So I still think there is a ton, ton, ton of opportunity. Mm-hmm. We're also sitting on an enormous amount of data across all of our systems. And unfortunately, that data isn't all connected. And uh, there are a couple of things that could come out of having that data all connected. One is, obviously, as I move around from provider to provider, you'll know you're, you're a former nurse. Every time a patient comes to your, your clinic and it's the first time there, I have to fill out the form. Are you allergic to this? Have you had any, you know, I have a metal pink in my right wall that I need to fill out every time just in case somebody says, well, let's put antidepressant in my heart and show it. It's when pink comes flying out from underneath my skin. Wouldn't it be nice if we had all that information centralised so that I went from provider to provider and they just knew me straight away? Nurse, GP, surgeon, anaesthetist. They just knew all the bits that they needed to, uh, needed to know about me instantaneously. Mm-hmm. On top of all of that, having spent a bunch of time working with really smart epidemiologists and researchers, um, we are we are trapped by their imagination. But that's not to say that these researchers are just making stuff up on the fly. They're really well-informed kind of guesses and hypotheses around what is the next treatment to chase down or what is the thing that we think is the exposure that lifts your risk for a particular condition. Um, Very, very, very intelligent people thinking about these hypotheses. But we've all got examples in our lives of people who have been sick with something and haven't been able to get treatment for their orals, that or reason. But they're cured, like they've, they've come out the other side and they don't have that thing anymore, or it's gone into remission and nobody wants why. And so all of these examples live in our data. And if we were able to have all that data in one place, and propel heads like me having access to that data, crunching through that data, we could find these pockets of insights. To help the researchers kind of chase that, what's the next hypothesis we should chase there? Um, and I believe, I believe very, very, very strongly in the scientific method, which is generate a hypothesis, collect data around that hypothesis, test that hypothesis, look at the result objectively, and determine there was evidence to reject that hypothesis um, or not enough evidence to reject it. So I believe in that. what I was was talking about a moment ago to some of your listeners would be akin to data dredging. Find me something until you find something exciting, and we'll proclaim that as something to publish as the cover article on nature, for example. Um, I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm suggesting we go through the data, we churn through the data, and we find things where scientists and doctors and surgeons and all the people who might better than me look at that and say, wow, that's interesting. I didn't you know, I didn't think to look down at that, Warren. Uh, let's, let's kind of scratch that further. Let's maybe start a new study from scratch to test that thing that you found because maybe there's something there that nobody ever thought to investigate. And so there's this wealth of information out there that is disconnected. And I just think that we could accelerate a whole bunch of our learning about what might be the next thing to chase down in terms of our health, common kind of knowledge uptick. And we're just kind of hamstrung with the way that data collected.
1: Thank you. That was a that was a big answer. There's a lot there to to unpack, and I sort of my mind was whirring at the, you know, when we were first earlier on in that you were talking about the and highlighting some of the operational inefficiencies in the in the system, and and I think to you know the broader health tech ecosystem that we have here in Australia and, and globally, but how amazing and and rich that ecosystem is in solving for that. So it's becoming more patient centric. We're solving for that patient flow where you can really have that bird's eye view of the entire hospital from the moment the patient walks to a triage window to sort of help remove those roadblocks and inefficiencies that, you know, perhaps one day as a patient, you'll be able to be sitting outside in the courtyard and a lovely nurse will come by and with the trolley and be able to give you your medication and your, your dressing as you need without having to be, you know, stuck within your bedroom, your room and your floor for the entire time of your stay. So, I think we're certainly certainly moving there and there's some great work being done across the ecosystem in Australia. What are you excited about in the immediate hori- on the immediate horizon?
2: So if you, I am. There is so much stuff that is emerging. I, I can't begin to tell you how excited, how excited I am. When I was five years old, my father had a bunch of heart attacks, and I remember him saying to me, "I had five heart attacks in two weeks and got revived twice. Amazing." Uh, and I remember thinking at the time, even as young as I was, and I think Dad instilled this message into me. He said, "You know, thank God I had these heart attacks now, Except it happened ten years earlier, I don't think I uh, help network or our system would have been able to to get me through And and I just always remember thinking, yeah, wow, well, our healthcare system and and what we know about the body, et cetera, is is incredible. Yeah, Dad, you know, we would really like to have those conditions now. And then we kind of meandered along and we got some knowledge over the next 10, 20 years. And the following decades after that, our knowledge is just, if you listen to podcasts in med tech or read blogs, et cetera, our knowledge is just jumping, um, leapfogging at a furious pace. And so it, let's acknowledge the enabler. The, one of the biggest enablers that we have is cloud computing, which has allowed us to store enormous amounts of data uh, and crunch enormous amounts of data for really, really, really small cost. And then, you know, the chips that we can put on the devices are these tiny, tiny, tiny little things, um, And they're hardy, so they're, you know, tough as all nails. animals. Um, and so I'm, I'm super excited. You know, I'm wearing a watch. I get to watch my heart rate. You know? And we had in um, Victoria, well, in Australia, you know, two weeks ago, we had the AFL Grand Final. I wasn't even watching, it wasn't even my like team playing in the Grand Final, but I could see my heart rate in the last five minutes of the Grand Final just kind of sparkly. It was so exciting. And to be able to see that, you could just monitor your heart rate um, you know, for a commoditized price. Uh, is incredible. But we're now seeing devices coming along that you can wear that are constantly measuring your glucose insertables that can measure, uh, that can look at your blood. Um, We've seen devices, you know, we know some cancer you're detecting through, um, through your breath. And so devices that can measure that sort of stuff and taking, taking thousands of readings every second and being able to store that information. What's really exciting is in the past, we would wait for somebody to be sick, go to the doctor. If you think about cancer as an example, you know, i have got this pain in you know, my lower back. can't get rid of it through physio, go see a doctor, do a blood test. Oh, you've got a tumour. Right, well, what do we do now? Well, for some people, we can cut it out. For some people, it's too late. The tumor's the tumour is just too far. Oh. The thing is, had we known to look well in advance, we could have detected things in the blood in the group that suggests that hey there's there's some cancerous cells developing and so we could start the chemotherapy well before the tumor started developing and just blotted out out that cancer so the ability for these wearables and insertables to detect stuff well 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 in advance of them being, becoming chronic or to the point of routine being able to treat those because what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to know what's Anthony's baseline what's what do all these metrics look like when he's healthy? And when things start wavering outside of the realms of normal, then we can start having alerting mechanisms to say, hey, Anthony, I really think you need to go see the doctor for this thing. Or we'll get to a world where we can even say, Anthony, I think you need, you need an extra hour's sleep tonight. Well, I think you'd need a little bit more fiber in your diet in the next few days. Or well, your cholesterol level doing this. You know, there are some doctors who are talking about being able to monitor your heart and what curing heart disease, as in we'll never see a heart attack again, but eliminating heart attacks because we'll be able to detect the heart attack so well in advance that we'll be able to get to a doctor and treat in some way, shape or form so that the heart attack never occurs. Uh, and that, for me, is unbelievably exciting because... If for no other reason, I think the US, I think 17%, something like 17% of their GDP spent on healthcare who can avoid having to go into healthcare. Then imagine freeing up all that money to go into education or environment or you know, all those sorts of things. Um, another thing is my mum is in a nursing home and we're kind of lucky. The part of the nursing home that she's in was redeveloped just before she got there. Which means that she has a little bit more privacy in her life because they put detectors in the floor so that they didn't need somebody to constantly be walking into a room uh, during the night just to check that she hadn't fallen out of the bed. At a certain time of the night, when the residents go to bed, they'll turn on the devices at the appropriate time and they'll say, All oh, well, right, Lucia, Anson's mum, she's now out of bed. She shouldn't be out of bed. Let's send somebody down there to check him on. And so, infrared capability, um, all that IoT, in my mum's time, she's in a nursing home, um, she has a better quality of life. But that stuff is all going to come into the house. So, we'll be able to, through the use of data and this technology, people will be able to have longer lives at home, independent living. And having, now being at an age and watching the generation, tons of them go through nursing homes and you know, all that entails. Um, by the way, my am still saying does an amazing job. But if I can avoid that for about 10 years through data and technology, you know, can't bring it on soon enough. So, you know, all of this stuff is exciting for me. You know, bear with me for a moment. It is a little bit disgusting. But one of the most exciting things that I've seen um, in development is, this is five years ago, so the world has walked now. Smart toilets. How many things do we detect? How many health things do we detect through the things that you just flush away? You know, once, twice, three times a day. And toilets now that can you log into your toilet and say, "Hey, this is Anthony here. I'm about to do whatever I usually do," and it doesn't just flush away; it analyzes it. And so you have this information kind of coming out of your body all the time. And so detecting things in a way, um, with enough advanced notice to do preventive stuff as opposed to treating it, cutting it out, medicating for it, I think is unbelievably exciting. So I don't want the future to come here quickly because it means I've got all more quickly, but I'm super excited to see um, what our healthcare tech people developing with next
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you've just taken us to some place I never expected our conversation to go to today, so... You never know what to expect. Um, let's have a, a little bit of a dive into Think and Grow. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, what Think and Grow and who Think and Grow are and, and what they can do for the industry?
2: Think and Grow, startup scale-up advisory, has been the heritage, um, a really deep heritage in in recruitment and help of organisations structure in a way for success. They know how to emerge into markets, when is the right like time to move from start to scale-up, what's it? like with our um you know, introduce, introductions to customers and all those sorts of things. But also, you know, in tech, in marketing, in my space, and data, and organisations kind of accelerate their knowledge on those particular spots. Uh, and so for me, a large number of businesses, medical and otherwise, uh, they sometimes struggle with what is the data strategy? Does the data need to be Absolutely pristine, or is good enough, or is close enough going to be good enough? I really want to solve for this problem. What's the best sort of algorithm to use? Does it need to be super accurate? Does it need to be incredibly explainable? What are the ethical frameworks that we should be throwing around us? How do I communicate this to the wider ecosystem, the customers, whoever it might be? So, helping organisations kind of accelerate on those journeys to kind of get the now, that hockey stick upswing in the next wave of growth. So it's it's an exciting organisation to be with because you get to work on a bunch of different problems, helping a bunch of founders. When you're stuck in a problem and you're working inside that problem, often it's a little bit hard to kind of lift yourself up and out and look around um, and get a, a wider range of thinking or opinion. Um, and that's what we do: parachute in um, and give those those perspectives. So. Yeah, that's what we're about and um, having both
1: Yeah, awesome. So they're to, to help provide that um, perspective from the balcony. Correct. Yeah, amazing. Well, she, do you have anything else to add today? We sort of have been on a little bit of a journey. It's been really lovely chatting with you.
2: The yeah, other thing I would add, um, add to, you know, to your listeners who are looking for at children and wondering uh, how to advise them onto a career, any, any extra kid we can get with mathematical capability, uh, we need every single one of them, right? In all industry, we have traditionally, only in, you know, in the corporate world, it's only the telcos, the banks and the utility companies and the taxation companies. We've been able to look forward data with the advent of cloud, like I said before, it's cheap. Cheap to collect, cheap to crunch. We don't have enough people to crunch that data to make knowledge no. out of the information that we're capturing. Yeah, so if I could leave your listeners with one thing, if I've got emerging mathematicians or data scientists, whatever they might be, if you keep them in math subjects for just one more year, wherever they jump off, if you can get them just one more year, please we encourage them to do so. And my name, Anthony, you go, easy, easy, easy to find. So, um, if you're looking for advice or if you're looking for someone to nudge that kid along and you know, be excited about the world of data, I'm always up for that. Course.
1: Wonderful. So nurturing the next generation of geniuses. <laughs> well, Angie, thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. and look forward to chatting with you again another day.
0: No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end of this episode. If you made it this far, you're the perfect person that I want to hear from. Our THT Plus audience survey is now open until the end of June, and I personally read every submission. In fact, if you leave a comment in the survey that you heard this promotion in a podcast episode, I promise I'll reply directly to you by email with a personal note of thanks, and I'll even buy your coffee next time I see you in person. It's pretty easy. Just go to talkinghealthtech.com survey and have your say. For more content and community about technology and healthcare, visit talkinghealthtech.com.